So um, this is going to be our second to last um, session in how to study the Bible. And so in the next two sessions, I'm going to combine um, the last couple of genres of biblical literature that we haven't discussed yet. Um, next week's, we'll have more of a relationship to one another, the two groups that we'll talk about, which will be the, the Old Testament prophets and the book of Revelation. We'll kind of combine that. That kind of has a tighter relationship. This evening, we're going to talk about um, Old Testament law and, and wisdom literature. Um, and so I want to start out by saying that those two things aren't inherently tied to one another. Um, but nonetheless, uh, you'll, you'll see some similarities um, in terms of what God does with them through Scripture, though they have very different purposes from one another. Um, so let's jump in here. I pulled a big quote because I felt like, in all honesty, that this paragraph quote was going to be better than anything that I could say. So you could ignore all the outline underneath it. But in terms of trying to understand Old Testament law, this quote I thought was great. So what's the purpose of the Old Testament law? Here were people who knew only slavery and Egyptian culture for centuries whom God was now about to reconstitute into a totally new people on the face of the earth. Not only must they be formed into an army of warriors in order to conquer the land promised to their ancestors, but they must also be formed into a community that would be able to live together both during the time in the desert and eventually in the land itself. They would need to shed the ways and culture of Egypt and not adopt the ways and culture of the Canaanites whose land they were to possess. This is such a dense paragraph. It essentially tells you everything about the story of the people of Israel that the whole Old Testament basically tells you with the exception of the prophetic books. Um, but this tries to show you what the purpose of the law was. Um, so let's, let's dive into it here. So what is the law? Point one here. Uh, first of all, the law can, can refer to, when people say law, that it can refer to multiple things even within the Bible. Uh, point A, it can be a reference to, multiple, to the multiple commandments. Um, and you'll see this even in the New Testament, that there's a variety of ways in which they will use the term the law. Um, Jesus even uses a variety of terms, or uses that term a variety of ways. So the law can sometimes refer to the multiple commandments. There are over 600 commandments found without the legal, or found within the legal literature of the Old Testament. Um, and so point B, uh, as a result, people started using the term law as the collection of legal literature as a whole. So basically, all the legal literature that you would find Exodus through Deuteronomy was often referred to as the law. And for, for the Hebrew people, they viewed the law, point C, as guidance to Israel on how to be God's people or how to be the people of Yahweh. The law was the foundation that caused the people of God to distinguish themselves or to be distinguished from every other people group that was on the earth. This was kind of their, not kind of, this was their foundational concept, was the collection of these commandments, the law as a whole. And, and primarily because it functioned, point D, as Yahweh's covenant with the Hebrews. That's an important word to the old, both the Old and the New Testament. It's an important word to Christian theology. The Yahweh's covenant with the Hebrews. What's a covenant? So let's talk about what a covenant was, because that's not a uniquely biblical concept, but it's not necessarily a term that we throw around too much anymore. There's some crucial parts to especially an ancient history covenant. Um, part 1a, you're going to have a ruler. You're going to have somebody that's ultimately highly powerful, highly in charge, has a lot of resources at his or her disposal. And then point B, you're going to have subjects, people that don't have all those things, that have very little power. There might be a bunch of people. Um, that might be the only thing that they got going for them is their numbers, but they don't have resources. They don't have uh, power within themselves. They might not even have significance. But in a covenant, the key is point C and D. 
Point C is that the ruler will offer his protection of the subjects. I'm going to offer you my protection. You get to be a part of my kingdom. You get to be a part of what I'm doing if, if becomes the crucial word that distinguishes between point C and D, if you abide by the instructions on how these subjects are going to show loyalty to the ruler. Okay, so you'll find these four components in any um, in any covenant that's made in ancient history, that there's somebody that's powerful, people who are not, some type of deal that gets the non-powerful people the protection of the ruler as long as the people keep up their end of the deal, some type of way of showing loyalty. Now, if you're familiar, now hearing those four parts, if you're familiar with the Old Testament law, you can start to see how the law if you start thinking about the different commandments that you've heard about, um, how the law kind of has different ways in which that loyalty is going to be shown. But the law ultimately served as the Hebrew way of showing loyalty to Yahweh. I could tell you the whole Old Testament story with this concept and the prophets. You basically would get the whole Old Testament story because ultimately God makes his people. Here it is in, a, in like a three-sentence version. Okay, The whole Old Testament in three sentences. God makes his people, yeah, <laughs> God makes his people and then makes a covenant with them by giving them the law, right? And then the people ultimately go through this cycle of failing to keep up their end. Some type of punishment occurs. God sends in a prophet to tell them, hey, you're not keeping up your end of the deal. And people go, oh yeah, they go back. They ask for forgiveness. God forgives them again, over and over and over again. And then the cycle continues. It just keeps going. That's basically the story of the Old Testament as a whole. So the law becomes the, the core covenant of the way that the people of God were going to show their loyalty. Okay? Now, the law can be broken down into different points here, uh, different parts. Um, the purpose, or how, how does that loyalty and how does that covenant get shown? Um, point 2a first you have the civil law the civil law the civil law can probably be broken down into a bunch of different categories and i didn't write down a bunch of examples with you because like i said there are over 600 different commandments and there's lots of different ways of categorizing them but all i'm really wanting to do is to show you that typically a lot of people have a tendency, if they haven't done any Bible study, but they're somewhat familiar with the Bible, when they think the law, they think the Ten Commandments, right? But there's so much more. You know that there's other laws that are out there, but they don't necessarily know like what those laws were about. Um, so let me just show you a couple of different categories. We've got the civil law. So point one, these were laws that guided individual purity. God gave them specific instructions on how to wash, how to eat, how to conduct themselves sexually, how to conduct a business. Um, all, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but these pertain to how the individual would keep himself in right relationship with God. Okay, But then in point two, you had got laws guiding interactions with one another. This is probably where you would fit the, uh, most of the Ten Commandments, right? Don't steal. Don't kill one another. Do not bear false witness against one another. Like, here's what I need you to do if you're going to be successful with interacting with one another. And interestingly, um, the civil law of God also had laws, point three, guiding the interactions with the outsider. God specifically told his people, even though he had a way of setting his people apart, he told them, you will be holy to my name. You will be specific and distinct and separated from the rest of the peoples. However, they had also specific instructions of, as to how they, could, how they could interact with the outsiders and how they could not interact with the outsiders. God had ways of allowing people to become Hebrew, and he had ways of protecting the Hebrews from those individuals that were not. Um, think back to what is stated in the paragraph that they needed to they needed to shed the ways and culture of Egypt and not adopt the ways and the culture of the Canaanites. Um, so, all, so all three of those different categories um, resulted in a variety of different kinds of laws. Then there were also point B, ceremonial laws. 
ceremonial laws. And this is stuff um, that was very specific to how God was constructing his people group and how they would worship him. Um, point one, there were laws guiding how to construct and run the tabernacle. And those laws ended up carrying over to how they would run the temple as well. Um, but the tabernacle was kind of like the first version of the temple. It was a um, it was a portable temple, basically, because the people were going to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. They needed to have a temple that was somewhat mobile. So there are a variety of laws as to not only how to construct that building, but then how to use those things that were um, inside of that building. Point two um, might be maybe the only other concept of the law that people are familiar with. There are laws guiding sacrifice laws guiding sacrifice. There are actually a lot of laws instructing the people about what the sacrificial process was going to look like. And there were not just one, there's, there was not just one kind of sacrifice. There were a variety of different types of sacrifices. And they weren't just animal sacrifices. Sometimes they were grain sacrifices. Sometimes they were liquid sacrifices. There was a variety of kinds of sacrifices, and God had specific ways in which he wanted all of these things to be done. We'll talk in a moment, because as I start to, at least my head, as I'm starting to hear all of these things, the first thing that, at least where I start going, is why. Why all of these different rules for all of these different things? And we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But I just want to introduce you to these different categories. Point C, and this is just a, I'm just going to throw this out as a theological point and then walk away from it because it's a discussion, complete discussion in and of itself. However, I would state for you that you will not find in the law that it describes itself as a means of salvation. Um, Paul does a lot in Romans to describe how the law was never intended to be a means of salvation for the Hebrew people. Um, it has commonly been misunderstood as such, that somehow that if you could abide by all of these laws perfectly, that you would, uh, you would be saved. And the fact is, the law never set itself out to be that way. God never handed out these instructions with that type of description. As long as you do these things, you'll be saved. And yet, nonetheless, people started to believe that that was the means by which God would save them. That was not at all what the, what the point was. Instead, it was um, showing these different ways to make these people, make the people unique in and of themselves. And it, in doing so, point D, it revealed Yahweh's character and priorities. Because remember, these people, these people were still getting to know their God, in a sense, especially when the law was first handed out in Mount Sinai, right? They had just been pulled out of Egypt. They didn't really know anything about interaction with God other than what they had seen in Egypt, which I don't know how much you've studied Egyptian theology, but I'll just, uh, as, as a introduction to Egyptian theology, it's very different than Christian theology in terms of how it thinks about man's interaction with the gods or God in general. So they're still getting to know what God's priorities are. Who is this Yahweh? What does he want? Why does he want these things? And what's it going to look like for me to be a part of this covenant with him? All right, this is a good place to take a breath for a second because I know I just shot through that pretty quickly. How are we, how are we feeling with that? Questions about that? Good? Okay, cool. Then, um, so then let's ask ourselves, okay, so that's all well and good for the purposes of trying to understand those things and it's still worth studying in and of itself, but how is this relevant to the Christian, right? Because the Christian, just in case you haven't figured out, I have never heard a sermon at Sierra Bible Church talking to you about how lobster is problematic for your soul, right? But, but you can't eat lobster under the Jewish law. I've never, I have never seen an animal sacrifice occur um, here, I, maybe next week. But the fact is, the fact is, well, maybe the tri-tep barbecues that we do or something like that. <laughs> Those are a sweet aroma to the Lord. Uh, but the, the point that I'm trying to make is that we're obviously operating at this church with an understanding that these Old Testament laws are not relevant to the Christian in some way. Or are they? 
And so let's kind of just talk about some really broad strokes because this in and of itself is multiple doctoral dissertations that we're not going to necessarily dive into. And I should tell you that what I'm going to share with you is not necessarily the only Christian position. You could have a couple of a couple of different Christian positions and still be, in my mind, what would be an Orthodox Christian. I mean, even up to, um, I don't know if you've ever interacted with Seventh-day Adventists, but they still um, generally, all of their theology about Jesus seems to be the same as the leadership that you would find at Sierra Bible Church, but for certain reasons, they also believe that the best way to express our worship to Jesus is by adherence to the Old Testament law. And so that's why they go to church on Saturdays. That's why they don't eat lobster. That's why they, etc., etc., etc. So let's talk about the law and the Christian. Number one, I'm sorry, point A. The New Testament makes clear that the law was an old covenant. So now you know what a covenant is. You know that that's an important term uh, for Christian theology. But it was an old covenant, right? When Jesus, um, when Jesus first served what's commonly known as the Last Supper, right? He, he told everybody, I don't know if you remember this language, but he told everybody, this is the new covenant in which I am making with you with my blood, right? He, he specifically told them, hey, new deal time. It's time for a new deal. And that's, what's, what's, that's significant, not only because of the transition of God's people over time, but that Jesus even had the authority in making that statement that I get to make the new deal. Because remember, who made the old deal? God himself with the people of Israel. So for Jesus to say, I'm making a new deal, is a, it's a claim of divinity in and of itself, right? Jesus is saying, I've got the authority to make a new deal. Uh, so that's pretty significant. Um, so if we're going to try to do some exegesis, like if we were going to study it, because granted, I, a lot of Christians don't really dive into Old Testament law to try to better their relationship with Jesus. But I would argue that there's still worth in doing so. I think that there's probably some work that can be done that actually will help you understand God better. What would we do about this? Um, so in, in terms of how to exegete the law, number one, your historical context is going to be the key, right? You need to understand what was going on. Think back to the paragraph here. They needed to shed the ways and the culture of Egypt and not adopt the ways and the culture of the Canaanites. They're coming out of a culture and going into a new culture or going to be surrounded by a new culture. And God is protecting them from that. In order to do that, there's, uh, there are ways that God's going to want to go about that. So trying to understand those, the, the concepts of history will make it, um, make it more accessible to you. I, I wanted to write a, what's that? The band at Jericho. The band at Jericho? Band. Oh, the band at Jericho? Band people from yeah. taking stuff. Right, 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 right. Um, I, I picked an example here um, out of Deuteronomy 14.21. It's one of my favorite examples to talk about because the first time that I read it, it my brain just went into a complete bunching. Um, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the first time I read that, and probably the 10th time I read that, I was like, okay, you know, I've, I've never been tempted to do that. I probably will not fall prey to, do, to doing it. And that's the great question to ask. And that's exactly what I'm trying to figure out for the historical context. Great question. Was that a thing? And what I finally was able to come across, and there's a couple of different laws that refer to this that are all referencing the same point. Because another thing you weren't allowed to do was to sow two different types of seed in the same ground. Mm. Another thing you weren't allowed to do was to um, take two different kinds of fabric and weave them together. All of these things were done as Canaanite. These were all Canaanite practices that were done to try to appease the gods because they were believed that if they would do those things, they were bringing in the power of these two different types of gods and it would make their, um, their endeavors more fruitful. They were essentially uh, fertility worship practices. And God's going, mm. I mean, we've referred, uh, we've referred to this as in our study of Ruth, that Ruth was coming out of a culture that had all kinds of religious practices that would not be acceptable to the Jews. Does God care about 
um, you know, boiling a young goat in its mother's milk. Uh, chances are, if you did that today, he wouldn't strike you dead. That's not really what his major priority is. What I would argue to you is once you understand the historical context, that that was a Canaanite idol worshiping practice of fertility, God would go, look, we're not going to do this, right? We're, we're not going to we're not going to be using these worship practices that you're going to see these other cultures do because that's going to cause you to be very confused about who I am, what I care about, and what I expect of you. So understanding that historical context is key. Number two, what can also be really helpful, um, and we won't dive into this in great detail, but understanding the literary context. Um, and by that, I mean what type of law is being discussed. And that's where I kind of gave you some tips ahead of time. Is this a ceremonial law? Is this a civil law? Because understanding the distinction between those two, there are Christians. I'll just throw this out so that you are aware of the conversations that are occurring. There are some that would say, well, there are portions of the Old Testament that apply to us. Um, but they then take those portions and say, these portions apply to Christians, but these portions do not. So they would say that portions of the civil law, the way that we interact with one another, still apply, but the ceremonial laws no longer would. Um, again, I'm not going to dive into that conversation. That's a huge conversation in and of itself. But knowing what they even mean in that conversation, what do you mean ceremonial versus civil and knowing that can be really helpful to try to figure out, okay, what are we looking at here? So then once we've done some exegetical work, what does it look like to do good hermeneutics in the law? I'm gonna give you just two simple principles that I think, um, at least for me personally, have actually caused me to enjoy reading Old Testament law. The first couple of times I did it, um, I'll be honest, uh, that was kind of a cure for insomnia, like trying to sort out like wh wh what was all there. But when I, when I started employing these principles, even in my own study, I started to get a little bit more interested into it. So I'm going to offer them to you. And they're in the form of a question. Verse one, I'm sorry, uh, point one. What priorities of God does this law show? So when you read this, asking yourself, what priorities of God does this law show? Let me tell you what I'm talking about by showing you an example. So we were in Deuteronomy 14 just a moment ago, and a couple of verses after your non-boiling goat uh, commandment, um, we, we, we run across verse 28 here. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce, and in the same year, and lay it up within your towns. Okay, so the people have been tithing, taking a portion. This is basically a, a taxation system is what it is. It's a taxation system. So you're going to bring out all the taxes you've collected. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, all of those that are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. Now, the question that I wanted to ask was, what priorities of God does this show? I'll just go ahead and, and point out what I find very interesting here is that God essentially says, you know these people that basically don't have a way of taking care of themselves? It's going to be a priority of mine that you take care of them. And if once you've done your historical context work and you realize, for instance, the Levite, what he means that the Levite has no portion. The tribe of Levi were the, was the only tribe of the 12 tribes that was given no land. They weren't given any land. And it was because it was going to be their specific job to be the temple workers. So they lived everywhere all throughout and then would come as it was their turn to work in the temple. But if you don't have any land in an agricultural society, how easy is it for you to build wealth for yourself? I, I mean, you can't do it, right? You can't raise cattle. You can't grow crops. You really can't do anything. You can't make any money. Look on top of these other people. Sojourners, people that don't have a home. They're traveling around. The fatherless. So we're talking about orphans here. The widows. Remember in this culture, um, the Ruth example has been really good. I mean, if you, if you didn't have a husband in this culture, you had very little ways of taking care of yourself. What God is essentially saying is, hey, you know these people that can't take care of themselves because they don't have the financial means to do so? 
people of Israel, it's going to be your job to do so. Your job is to be taking care of them. I, through you, will be taking care of the people that in every other culture would fall by the wayside and probably just die. They'd be neglected, completely neglected. And so when we ask ourselves, when we read a passage like that and ask, what priorities of God does this show? We learn that God cares about people who can't take care of themselves. And that's really relevant to us, right? I mean, I, when I try to, uh, you know, some of my, my graduate work was in um, ethics. And when you talk about ethics, you talk, uh, especially in the medical ethical community, um, uh, a big topic of conversation is euthanasia. You know, whether or not we are, at what point is it okay for us to decide that we're gonna allow someone to die as opposed to somebody dying of natural causes? And there's so many different components of that conversation to have. But wrapped up into that, I, I learn about God's priorities that God, God sees as a high value when his people take care of people who can't take care of themselves. When these people who may not be able to take or make a decision for themselves, this is not something that I can just be doing flippantly. Eh, you know, just do whatever you want. You know, but God prioritizes my taking care of other people, okay? Um, so then point two, because not everything will necessarily show us, point, uh, will show us God's priorities. But point two, sometimes they also show us what characteristics of God does this law explain? What characteristics of God does this law explain? Um, by way of example, I'll just jump over real quick. And this should be an easy example because you've probably heard it preached in sermons before. Um, so that's why I picked this one because it won't. You know, it doesn't require a bunch of theological technicality or anything. But if we go to Exodus 29 and read this in verse 10 through 12. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. And it goes on to specifically talk about how they're then going to sacrifice the different portions of the bull. We look at that, and it can be almost a little bit grotesque, right? It, it can almost be like, why would God care about how the entrails are specifically handled? And why is everybody messing about in the blood of this giant animal? I don't know if you've ever seen a big animal bled out, but there's a lot of blood to deal with. And fortunately, later in, in Scripture, um, in both Romans and in Hebrews, we get an explanation that blood... Uh, Blood is, was always the symbol of the life itself and the significance of death. Blood, when the blood was external to this animal, it signified essentially that somebody had to die. And when you understand the context of the blood that's being used, the sacrifice that's being done by these people, we're showing them that it is because of your mistakes, because of your problems that somebody or something is going to have to die. There can be no atonement without death. Jesus then later shows us, and this is how the writer of Hebrews ties it together, it is Jesus' death that then acts as the ultimate atonement for sin once and for all. But the characteristics of God that this shows us is that he takes our separation from him very seriously. He takes our transgression of the covenant very seriously. And as a result, it is a life and death situation. This is not just something that we can flippantly do. This is something that is, that is of crucial importance. And, and so as a result, he gave them very specific instructions as to how to go about this process so that it was done with intent, that it was done with care, and that it was done in a way that would bear a powerful image for the people as a whole. So it teaches us things about God's characteristics. Now, obviously more can be said about the Old Testament law. Um, and like I said, it's, it's not always the first few times that you read it, it can be a, a pretty tough slog. But if you understand the role of the law and you understand um, that it not only was distinguishing God's people 
but also showing the character and the qualities and the priorities of God. Even in reading those laws that um, I've, I've shared for you that we no longer see as requirements or necessities for the Christian to follow, even in reading them, you get to see a lot about the character of God, what he values, and those values don't change because God's character never changes. Does that make sense? Okay. If there's no questions about that, then we'll shift gears and we'll jump into wisdom literature. Good? Okay. All right. Wisdom literature. Um, by wisdom literature, uh, I went ahead and listed out the books specifically for you that we're talking about. Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of, depending upon what version of the Bible you have, you might, yours might be titled Song of Solomon, yours might be titled Song of Songs. Um, but ultimately, what are we talking about when we talk about the contents of Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon? I would, I would guess that probably the book that you're the most familiar with in that list is the book of Proverbs. But all four of these books are concerned with wisdom. And you need to understand that it wasn't just the Hebrews that were concerned about wisdom, right? I mean, if you buy good earth tea, uh, chances are you've seen on one of the tea tags, you know, statements of Confucius or something of that, right? They're, they're all cultures have, um, have had sages and individuals that have been trying to tell people, hey, here's how to gain wisdom, here's how to be wise, here's the value of wisdom. And the Hebrews were that, those type of people as well. Um, I, I want, though, real quickly to define what we're talking about. If we're going to look to these books in the Old Testament for wisdom, which I think is worth doing, what are we talking about? Um, and I think it's first helpful by point 2A here to talk about what wisdom is not. Number one, wisdom is not just knowledge. Um, I actually am really happy about the age range of the individuals around me because my, my uh, pop culture references will probably be a little bit there. I'm, I'm always closer in generation than I am to like the local high schoolers or whatever, right? But if you'll remember the movie Rain Man, right? That was kind of like the, the population's first um, exposure to uh, the autism spectrum disorder, but um, he was a savant, right? He had he had extensive collections of knowledge in certain areas, right? He, um, he could tell you how many times all the different air crashes had occurred, and that's why you had to fly Qantas, right? Or he could tell you, uh, I think he also had baseball statistics nailed down, right? So, but that's a ton of knowledge, but he still couldn't figure out how to successfully navigate himself through society, right? He needed his brother in, to do that. Knowledge, having knowledge is not just wisdom. And I, I wish that my culture understood that, right? Because through these little machines that we now carry around in our pockets, um, I heard somebody say it this way, and I don't know who to attribute it to, but I, I love the phrase. We are now swimming in knowledge, but drowning for lack of wisdom. Wisdom is something more than just having knowledge or even having access to knowledge. So that's the first thing. Wisdom is not just knowledge. Two, wisdom is also not intelligence. When we say intelligence and wisdom, we don't say the same thing. Intelligence, I, I'm sure you, um, you know, if you've been around, uh, if you've, you guys have raised some kids, right? You've, you've had some older kids. And if, even if it wasn't, yeah, you still have them. Yeah, they haven't disappeared from the face of the earth. Um, but you've probably either, either you yourself said it or heard some of your friends say, like, he's a smart kid, but he still just, what, like, does nothing, right? They, if it's the teenage boy, he drives his car 125 miles an hour. Like, he could still walk into AP Physics and pass that test without even thinking about it, but then he turns around and, and crashes his car off of a ravine or, you know, all, all of that types of thing. He's a, everyone then will refer to him. They're a smart kid, but they still do all these stupid things, right? Because sometimes they can even have, you can have intelligence, but they don't seem to be able to apply it. I think we've all met people 
um, that this is where we even get the distinction between book smart and street smart, right? You talk to somebody that seems to always know the right answer to every question and can go win any Jeopardy championship ever, but they walk down the street, bump shoulders with somebody and can't figure out how to get out of that situation because all their Jeopardy answers don't mean anything in that moment. Okay, so we've talked about what it's not. Uh, I'll just throw this out there. I think I, I see intelligence kind of like as a computer processor. That's the, the, it's, it's your processor speed, right? The, the really intelligent people, they can, it's not just a collection of knowledge, but they also are capable of, of uh, processing that knowledge really quickly, but neither of those exhausts our idea of wisdom. Wisdom, this is gonna be my simple definition of wisdom. Wisdom is well-used information. Well-used information. This is the shortest definition that I could come up with it because there's, there's a lot to this. But if you have knowledge but can't figure out how to use it well, then you're, then you're not going to be wise. You might be the most intelligent person in the world, but if you can't figure out how to apply that knowledge well, then you will not be known as wise. When you are... If you're seeking out what it looks like to be a wise person, you're going to have to figure out how to use information well. And it's important to also point out from the biblical perspective, what I put a reference there to Proverbs 9.10, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You cannot use the rest of the information out there if you don't have the foundational information correct. And I see this all the time, right? I mean, I see as I interact with people, that want to try to ascribe to a non-God version of reality. You know, that all we are is just uh, physical materials, that religion is just a helpful, helpful way to be moral with one another, but don't actually see theological truths as actual truths. There are certain major components of human interaction that they don't, they don't know how to navigate well. Um, not saying that they can't get around that and there's not, there aren't ways that they try to adapt for that, but ultimately they can't have the type of wisdom that's taught to us in scripture without that foundational concept. So that being said, what I want to do is now just kind of pull apart, um, what you would expect to see or how you could best use these different books of wisdom literature in the old Testament. I'm going to spend the most of it in Proverbs because that's pretty much the version that most people or the, the book that most people will turn to and spend the majority of their time in. Um, what's the deal with Proverbs? Uh, point A, Proverbs are general truth, general truth expressed in memorable ways. General truth expressed in memorable ways. Let me unpack what I mean by that. Point one, they're general in that they are mostly true for most circumstances, okay? You're already seeing kind of where I'm leading with this, um, and I'll unpack this in different ways. But it, it's general truth, mostly true for most circumstances. Number two, they're phrased in memorable ways. They are phrased quickly, and they typically will use some type of imagery. And so it's important for you to recognize all of those realities when we start going, okay, well then what does it look like to do good exegesis in Proverbs? We've got to remember we're dealing with general truths. And as we deal with those general truths, that they are phrased quickly, which means that they're not going to show every single different concept that you might need to know about this topic. They're phrased quickly and they're phrased with pro... Oh, did somebody drop their keys? Thank you. Those are not mine. Where, where'd you find them? They were over there? Yeah. Okay, I'll put them in the lost and found. Thank you so much. I appreciate Thank that. You. Subaru. Oh, none of us have Subarus. Or at least none of us are driving Subarus today. Um, okay. So it's important to recognize that they're phrased quickly and that they use imagery, right? So um, that will then help when we do exegesis. Point one. If we're going to do some exegesis, while some historical work will prove helpful... The good news about, about Proverbs is that most of the time, the translators have done most of the work for you already, okay? Let me, I want to look at these passages in Proverbs in reverse order of what I have them listed here. Um, let's look first, uh, if you want to turn there, uh, to Proverbs 9. 
and look at verse uh, look at verse 10. So Proverbs 9, and we're going to look at verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. We could just stop there. Do you really need to have any type of historical information to understand that verse? Not, not really, right? I mean, it's, it's pretty blatantly there, right? That if you fear the Lord, that will be the beginning of, of wisdom. That knowing the Holy One is insight. But if you do your historical work, I'm, this is not a tricky question. I'm not, you know, I'm not um, pointing out to you, ha, here's where I got you, you're all wrong. But, you know, you might, you might figure out that as you're studying it, that this is a, a very Hebrew way of writing two lines. They like to use parallelisms, right, where the first idea and the second idea are just two different ways of saying the same thing. Um, you might want to, you know, if you did some historical context work, you might want to look up what it means to fear the Lord, right? Because that, that can kind of pick up different connotations. You know, I'm going to put the fear of God in you. That's typically a bad thing, right? That means the switch is about to come from my yeah. back, the back of my leg or whatever the case is. But, but it's not real tricky to understand this stuff. You don't have to understand a lot of historical information to get that, right? So some of the Proverbs are going to be like that. Still learn from them, still look at it, but you don't necessarily have to have a ton of historical information. Let me just show you over in Proverbs 6, though. And I don't think that this is necessarily like a hard and fast, super-duper example, but just on the other side, that sometimes that historical information can be really helpful. If you look at Proverbs 6, 1 through 5. My son, if you put up security for your neighbor and have given your pledge for a stranger... If you're snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you've come into the hand of your neighbor. Go hasten and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Now, I, I don't know about you guys, but when I read those five verses right there, that doesn't immediate, the meaning of those verses does not immediately present itself to me. I feel like I might need to do a little bit more work, okay? And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But the point is, all that I'm trying to point out to you is this, is that even though the Proverbs were general truth trying to be written to a, in a memorable way, they were being written in that memorable way then with those customs to that people group with those types of historical circumstances. Trying to understand this without actually understanding those people groups, the way that they understood, what, the, what this practice is that's being referred to, that's where we're then going to be more successful in understanding what this then would mean to us, right? Because this, I, I have never been in a situation where somebody has said, where my neighbor has come up to me and said, put up security for me. I, I just don't know what that means, right? And so, and I'm not gonna spend the evening um, unpacking this for you. But the point is this. I just wanted to show you two different places in Proverbs where sometimes you don't have to do a ton of work and the meaning is pretty clear. You know what your general truth is. You know what it is that you need to do with that. Sometimes you're going to have to do more work. But the book of Proverbs has kind of both of those. So just don't Approach the book of Proverbs assuming that because they are general truths that are phrased quickly with imagery, that you're going to immediately understand every single proverb. Some of them you're still going to have to do some work, just like you would do in studying any other portion of Scripture. And that's okay. However, it's important to understand, too, when you dive into this, that Proverbs use poetic language. This is point two. There's no blank there, so you're good. Proverbs use poetic language. So if you really hated the portion of your English class in high school that uh, taught you about poetry, you might struggle a little bit with, with Proverbs. But sometimes it's really uh, it's useful. I just wanted to give you some examples. Um, if we, um, if we uh, you could look at Proverbs 10. Let me just, for the sake of time, I want to go over to Proverbs 31. Um, there's only one woman among us this evening, um, but... Personally speaking, whenever somebody says, 
um, that they want to talk about Proverbs 31, I get a, a slight chill that goes down my spine because I don't have, I won't tell you that there's anything wrong with Proverbs 31, but let's look starting in verse 10 about the description of a woman in Proverbs 31, starting in 10. An excellent wife who can find. She's far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with her willing hands. She's like the ships of a merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it's still night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. Look, I, I mean, we could just stop right there. Where is this woman finding all of this time to be able to do this? Here's what I want to point out to you, okay? I think that there are probably a lot of well-meaning women driving themselves crazy, comparing themselves to the description that's in Proverbs 31. And I would say that that is completely unnecessary and possibly dangerous if one tries to hold oneself up to the standard. And you could say the same thing as a man. If this is what a perfect woman's like, then a perfect man, especially in this culture, would have even more description associated with it. The fact is, friends, none of us will ever attain the standard, and that's okay. This is poetic language, right? And they use things like hyperbole, right? This is over-exaggeration. That these are characteristics that if you see these in a woman, hey, this is probably a, this is probably a woman worth spending some time with. This is something, it's, there's nothing wrong with aspiring to some of these things. Oh, do you have one that's your favorite she, one? She's not afraid, sorry. What? She's not afraid of snow for her household. <laughs> She's not. A, you definitely want that one. Yeah, you want a truckie woman that's not afraid of snow. Definitely. That'd be a good T-shirt. The, yeah, you know, the, the point is that by reading Proverbs 31, uh, I, there should be no woman saying that I have to be these things. No, that's not at all what, that, what that's saying. Remember, this is poetic language that includes hyperbole, that includes very descriptive exaggeration for the sake of trying to make a point, right? So um, just, just bear that in mind that's in there. My favorite one, I actually quoted this to a coworker the other day. It's okay. Um, the, uh, I quoted this to a coworker the other day that, that uh, like a dog returns to its vomit, a fool returns to his folly, mm. right? And uh, it fit, but she looked at me with the biggest cross-eyed look that she possibly could have had because she had no idea what it was that I was talking about, right? Um, but it can be, I like the descriptive language that's there. And that poetic language kind of drives home the point a little bit more. So just be, be on the lookout for that. So let's look at some um, hermeneutical tips. So if we were going to try to translate some of these proverbs into our own life, two things that are important to say. Number one, there's a blank here if you're a blank filler in her. Proverbs, this is the way that I say it. Proverbs are not promises. Remember, when we talked about proverbs, these are generally true things. They are not 100%. It's always this way, right? The fool um, that returns to his folly every time like a dog that goes back to his vomit. Is there a possibility that given the opportunity that the fool might make the right decision at some point? Yes, he might. Where this one really starts to get people, I remember having a friend um, that was raising some children that were getting close to graduating high school and she was struggling because she read in Proverbs that if you train up a child in the way that he should go, in the end, he will not depart from it. And she said, I must have done something wrong in laying down the foundation of my children's concept of God because they've walked away from the faith and want nothing to do with it. So this woman was living guilt-ridden and completely battering herself with her own understanding because she felt like this proverb was a promise that if I train my child in the way that he should go, namely, that if I train my child in the understanding of God and that being a Christian is worth doing and that following Christ will bring you all the joys of your heart, in the end, your kids will be Christians. That's not what that says, right? It's talking about general truths that are generally true. So what would we pull out of that? That it's of crucial importance for you to lay the foundation early in your kids' hearts. 
But does that proverb promise us that everything is going to work out okay in the end? No, it doesn't. Sometimes it doesn't. So why does it say it then? Ah, let's save that question for a different time. Because well, uh, what I'll leave, leave you with is that generally speaking, that is generally true. However, I recently heard, now I'm doing what I just said that I wasn't going to do. There's a... There's an interesting interpretation that I recently came across that I want to do some more work with. So my, my answer initially up until literally just like a month ago would have been that the Proverbs are trying to share with parents, hey, your job is to lay down the foundation and that foundation will always be there. Even if they walk away from the faith, you still have laid down that foundation and they'll never be able to walk away from the, that foundation that those foundational years, that still guiding a child, even if it doesn't become a follower of Christ later, laying down that foundation is still better than not laying it. That's how I would have interpreted it until um, about a month ago. I recently, and again, I, wanna, I have to do some more work on this, but recently heard a guy do a message on this that actually was, states that our understanding of what it means to train a child in the way he should go is a misunderstanding and a mistranslation of the phrase, which is better translated as train a child according to the way he is going. And what this guy made the argument was is that we as parents need to stop with some type of rigid structure of how to train kids. That if it trained, if you trained your daughter the same way that you trained your sons and daughters, the same way that I trained them, my sons, that all of them are gonna result in the same grand, uh, grand ending. What this guy was actually arguing, and I wanna do, I need to do some more work, but that instead what it's arguing is that you as a parent need to look into the individual hearts of each of your children and to train them according to the way they are going to basically essentially raise them according to the unique way that god made them i found that to be a really compelling idea because i have found that at least in my own parenting journey to be true that i cannot i cannot raise one of my sons the same way that i can raise my other son so I found that somewhat compelling, but again, I have not done my homework to say that that's exactly what that means. But either way, right? Um, either way, the statement that I'm trying to make about Proverbs is still true, that these are still generally true things, right? Because you could specifically train a child in the way that they're going to end up going, and you think that in the end they're not going to depart from it because that's the way that God has made them. But then something traumatic happens. You ever seen this before where somebody has had a personality in this direction their entire life and then something traumatic, trauma typically is the main thing that does it. All of a sudden they hook at a 90 degree angle and they're going a completely different direction. So my, my point is that you're, you're, that woman is, you know, kind huge. She's stuck in right now. Those kids can find their way back. Yeah, he might might find his way back. Yeah. So that's you know, that. so it could be almost always true. Could be close to a promise, but um, but it's not a promise. Yeah, and I think it's just important to recognize that when you're talking about generally in terms of what is generally wise to do, and this will get unpacked a little bit more when we get into these other books, what is generally wise to Drew is, is just that. It's generally the thing to do. This is generally what you should do. But I think we can all, if given enough time, can think of some differing circumstances and go, well, most of the time we would do it like this. However, there are some exceptions, right? And um, that first drove me crazy when I was in the police academy. They would, you know, we as like brand new police officers would raise our hands. Well, what do you do in this circumstance? And the teachers would almost never give us a straight answer and always say, well, it really depends upon some circumstances that you haven't given me yet. Each one, each one of those things has exceptions and each one of those things has the circumstances kind of change it. So generally speaking, Proverbs are not, well, not, not generally speaking, Proverbs are not promises. There are no guarantees in Proverbs, but the information is generally true, okay? Uh, point two, some ideas in Proverbs, as you're looking to do your hermeneutics, some ideas in Proverbs are better expressed with a modern translation. 
And when I say modern translation, I don't necessarily mean something that was done recently. I mean something that is a little bit con less concerned, if you'll remember all the way back to when we talked about Bible translations, a little bit less concerned with word-for-word -word translation and a little bit more focused on idea-for-idea -idea translation. Like, let me give you an example here. Proverbs 27, um, 27, 22, says this. Proverbs 27, 22 Crush a fool in a mortar with a pestle, along with crushed grain, yet his folly will not depart from him. I'm going to read that again. Crush a fool in a mortar with a pestle, along with crushed grain, yet his folly will not depart from him. I would argue that the majority of people that I interact with on a daily basis would have no idea whatsoever what this verse means. And so I could spend a ton of time unpacking for them what that actually means. But I ran across a translation of this verse that I think is so much more helpful to try to just understand what the meaning of it is. And it simply said this, doesn't matter how hard you hit, you can't beat the foolishness out of a fool. Basically saying that for the wise, the circumstances that come as as adversarial against them, the things that hit them, they're going to learn from them, they're going to grow, and it's actually going to make them better. But that only works for the wise. If someone has decided to pick the path of foolishness, every single thing that hits them, it only seems to make them worse, and they never seem to grow out of it, and instead they seem to just keep going down, right? I've now, I've now talked about that idea in such a way that you could look at yourself and go, okay, how do my circumstances affect me? If you, generally speaking, are growing from your circumstances, okay, you've chosen the path of wisdom. Things are going well. If you're the woe is me Eeyore that every single time something goes bad, it seems to drive you deeper into the hole, you're choosing the path of foolishness. I didn't have to explain for you what a mortar and a pestle was. I didn't have to explain for you what it looks like to crush the grain or what that process is even like. So that being said, sometimes taking like a really... Um, a really paraphrased version of the Bible in Proverbs will actually cause you to get a whole lot more meaning um, to, to work with from these Proverbs. All right, so those are my hermeneutical tips for the Proverbs. Now I'm going to go um, just pretty quickly through the other books of wisdom literature and give you some general tips. Um, so if we were looking for wisdom in Job, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, just three ABC here. Um, point A, these books were written to be read as a whole. They were written to be read as a whole. You cannot just pick one chapter of Job and understand what the point of Job is or get the message of Job. You cannot just dive into Ecclesiastes 5 and understand what Ecclesiastes has to say. Unlike the Proverbs, where basically you could just you could open the book of Proverbs and just do this in most of the chapters and find one verse and just work with that verse. Now, you still want to try to understand it in the whole counsel of God, but in these other books, Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, you've got to read them as a whole to understand what they're trying to tell us about wisdom. As a result, point B is kind of my caution. There is a temptation to take portions of them and and use them even as allegorical or use them in even false ways. I have, because for whatever reason, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Song of Solomon or the context of the Song of Solomon, but it talks a whole lot about sex. And there are a lot of uh, denominations in Christianity that really don't like talking about sex for some reason. And so I've heard all kinds of allegories um, applied to the Song of Solomon so that basically the person can avoid having to talk about sex. That instead, this is a reference to Christ's relationship with his church. And I just, when I hear those things, I just go, where, where are you getting that? Where are you even seeing that? Um, everybody at that time recognized what was going on with this book is that God was looking at a sexual relationship well expressed between a man and a woman and saying, this is good. Think of how confused our culture is about sexual expression and how, why, or how much more wisdom could be gained from understanding healthy sexual expression from God's perspective. 
If you're going to be a wise person, you need to talk about and dialogue about sex. And Song of Solomon gives us the opportunity to do so. But you got to read it as a whole. You don't get to just pick out little parts of it and then go, well, this is the part that I think God really wants me to learn as opposed to understanding the whole thing. So here's a way that I think is the most helpful way. Again, this is just Brad talking to you now. But a way to try to see how these books can best be used because there's lots of discussion, lots of disagreement about how to best use them. But I would argue that ultimately point C is the core of what they are, that these are books that are discussing what it means to be human, that all, all of the great books that people will point you to, like if you're looking for classic literature or the works that have survived through history, they all kind of explore this theme of what does it look like to be human? What does it mean to be human? And when you dive into these books, you, you need to, like point one here, you need to get a full picture. That's that blank there. Get a full picture of what's being said. You can't just look at the narrow view. You want to look at the full picture. Um, just by way of example, let's just look at the opening couple of lines to Ecclesiastes. So this is just from Ecclesiastes 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. Okay, so, I mean, we can just stop there, right? We're seeing again some poetic language. If nobody, nobody ought to be coming here to verse 5 saying, Aha, the Bible says the sun rises and the sun goes down. And we, we know that that's not actually true. It's, it's our perspective because of the spinning nature of our galaxy. And no, no, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. This is poetic language to discuss a huge concept. And what is the huge concept that's being discussed? Ultimately, it's, is there any meaning in life? And you'll find that throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, that's what the writer is struggling with. Is there any meaning in life? What is the meaning of life, right? We always joke about like when our five-year-olds come to us and, well, our five-year-olds don't ask that, but like that's the, that's the like quintessential philosopher question that everybody makes fun of philosophers asking, right? That they all just sit around talking about is there meaning to life? But the rest of people like aren't really interested in that question. The fact is we all are interested in that question in some way, shape, or form. And there's stuff to be said about that in scripture. But you have to look at it as a whole. If you just read verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes to try to get an answer to that, you're not going to. Instead, you gotta, you got to give it time to use all that poetic language. you got to get that full picture. And these big questions of life are being addressed in all of these books. Let me show you some of these big questions here as our final points. Point 2A, why do bad things happen to good people? You ever asked yourself that question? People have been asking that question since literally the first book of the Bible was written, which was Job. People were asking themselves that question. And the book of Job addresses that question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Not necessarily in a way that some philosopher would stand up in front of you and go point one, point two, point three, point four. No, it does it in a very um, old or ancient history type of way, but still it's addressing this core question of what it means to be human. Why do bad things happen to good people? I've already just uh, told you about point B. It, what's the purpose of life? The book of Ecclesiastes spends, what is it like? I think it's nine or 10, 12 chapters kind of addressing the different ways in which people have tried to approach meaning and purpose in life. And ultimately, the author shows how useless those approaches are. Um, point C, how is love best expressed? What, what is healthy sexual expression, right? I mean, that's, that's an important question for people that are seeking wisdom. And the Song of Solomon Song of Songs has a way to address those issues. But in order to do that, you have to, my final point here, allow the characters in these stories, in, in these writings, allow the speakers to explore the various options as these questions are discussed. Because if you, 
If you just jump in and look for your one line and then try to run off with your one line, you won't see the whole picture that's being addressed. Where I think Ecclesiastes is just a perfect example of that. But you could also, if you dove into the arguments that Job's friends try to make with Job, if you're familiar with that book, they share basically for chapters worth of information, they share wrong ideas. So if you just looked at one chapter in isolation, essentially you'd be in your search for wisdom, getting the wrong idea. You have to look at it as a whole and see how those characters are playing into the larger story um, to try to answer the question that's being addressed. So that being said, uh, hopefully that's given you some tools and some perspective on how to use wisdom literature. Um, Next week, we will finish with this series on how to study the Bible by talking about prophecy and the book of Revelation. Um, and hopefully at that point you will have been given a bunch of different tools for your tool belt to then uh, approach scripture um, with some new ways. So um, that's it. Thanks for coming. I'm glad you guys were here tonight. Thank you.